for the ladies bought or the men. Bought a mic, mic. We bought, bought a mic, mic. We bought, we bought a mic. Episode fifty. Yeah. We're gonna take it real slow on this one. Mixing it up on the viewers. Yeah. I, I, we have been getting like overwhelming number of complaints that people are like, hey, the intro used to be the worst part. You guys don't mix it up anymore. And it's way too damn short. I like it whenever it lasts like five to eight minutes long for an well, intro. It's all about compromises here. Yeah. So we compromised at like three and a half minutes. Welcome to the show. I am Ernest Calderon. I am Hunter Mobley. And it's just it's just the two of us today. No Drew. He, it's based on the content we're seeing today. Um, you guys all know Drew is a member of the clan, so he couldn't be involved in our recording today just because he just he sees Topher Grace and can only think about Foreman and also he hates black people. Basically, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had to take a, a definitive stand on this one and it was like, guys, I I can't see black clansmen. He like, was like the Nazi rally got canceled in Washington, so I'm canceling my appearance on We Bought a Mic this week. They'll revoke his membership card. Yeah. They'll just they would just rip it up. Because as right we in know, that's him. just how it works. You just get a member you can just sign up for a membership yeah. card, get one yeah. in the mail. Uh yeah, so we're talking the latest Spike League joint Black Klansman. Um and a couple things that we've been watching. But let's just jump into the news before any of that. We have a new Wes Anderson film announced. Uh, no title yet. All we know is that it will be shot and set in France, and it's a period piece. Post-World War II. Yeah, and probably a musical, which is pretty intriguing because he's had musical elements to his films before, mm-hmm. but never a full-on musical. So this should be interesting. Yeah, my prediction um, just... This is, again, just a prediction. Wes Anderson hasn't directly said anything like this, uh, but if anybody is familiar with the film Umbrellas of Cherbourg, um, people like Wes Anderson, Damien Chazelle have cited as a huge influence before, and I feel like that's kind of going to end up being like what he's going for here. Um, He's definitely said before, I'm trying to figure out the name of the... Jean Renault? Not Jean Renault. I was... was, uh... A big fan of uh, of Isle of Dogs, ultimately, you know. I, even though it, it didn't ring as as true for me the, on the first viewing, on the second viewing, I definitely came around. So I'm I'm still on the on the Wes Anderson boat. I think he, uh, you know, you're definitely totally entitled to not liking his shtick because it's a very unique shtick. It's very very stylistic which yeah. will turn people away. But that out. You know, there's no reason to not be excited for a new Wes Anderson movie. Um yeah, I pulled up his name. His name is uh, Jacques Demy. Jacques Demy. Um he is the person who uh directed and wrote Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Wes Anderson has before cited him as a huge influence and one of like uh one of his favorite directors. So anybody who's not familiar with it, it's not a classical Hollywood musical in which there's Talking, 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 
set piece with music and dance number. It's more in the style of an opera in which there's kind of most of the dialogue is delivered in kind of a sing-song fashion. So that's just kind of what I feel like is going to he's going to go for here, which Umbrellas of Cherbourg is a absolute beautiful film. So it would make sense for him to kind of draw off that. It's very colorful. It is very symmetrical in the way that uh, a lot of the frames are composed. So it seems like that would kind of lend hand in hand perfectly with a lot of Wes Anderson's style. So, I mean, like you said, I was a big fan of Isle of Dogs. I've only seen it the one time, but I really, really enjoyed it uh, the first viewing. It's in my top 10 right now for my favorite movies of the year. I think it's number 10 right now for me. It may actually, now that I think about it, it may have dropped down to 11. We'll see. I, I Spoilers, but the movie we're talking about today is probably going to make that list. So it, there's going to be some tinkering happening yeah. regardless. <laughs> um, yeah, just to kind of wrap up my thoughts on this, like, you know, people kind of bogged down Wes Anderson a little bit for his approach to Asian culture um, with uh, Isle of Dogs. And I think that ultimately, like, you know, him making a movie about a different culture, regardless of what that culture is, it was going to draw, you know, uh, emotions negative emotions no matter what um so you could view this as like a step in more of a moderate direction to kind of uh avoid more reactions like that but i i just i feel like the man he's not concerned with like pleasing people like that and and like correcting his career from backlash like that. Like it's not, it's not, um, I don't think you're right to call this like a corrective move for Wes Anderson's career. I mean, absolutely. I don't think it's this not, is what he's, this is. He's doing another culture piece. And I don't think like Wes Anderson has always been criticized for appropriating. I don't think that that's, even if it might come across that way in some films over others, I know specifically with a lot of the backlash with Isle of Dogs, but I think that, genuinely I don't think he was ever trying to appropriate I think that he's trying to pay homage to that culture and kind of recognize its influence that has in a global culture and it just I we live in a reactionary culture and of course I'm not Asian I'm not an Asian American so maybe I'm not the best person to specifically speak on that but whenever I watch uh something like Isle of Dogs that's made with the craft and the thought and expertise they put into it it seemed like it was he was making it from a place of celebration not a place of appropriation yeah and hopefully this will be the yeah. same i don't think the man is ever trying to to, he's, to he's go on, that route he's on quite a a little upkick here he had a little bit of a downturn that um after like uh, i believe it was Royal Tenenbaums. He was kind of quiet for a few years, made a few movies that didn't make any buzz, and then he came back with Moonrise Kingdom, then Grand Budapest, and now Isle of Dogs. So he is kind of riding a yeah. little bit of a hot streak here. So we'll see what happens with this upcoming so, film. Before we get to what we've been watching, I just quickly wanted to bring up the abysmal opening weekend of the new Kevin Spacey flick, Billionaire Boys Club, which actually came out 
on video on demand uh, maybe about a month ago or so. But for some reason, they decided to still roll it out in theaters just to try to make some money. And they did not. It's expected that the opening weekend will be around $500. Yeah, I kept... So um, there was a tweet that came out on uh, yesterday um, that said, Kevin, new Kevin Spacey film makes $126 Friday opening. <laughs> and I kept reading it, telling myself it said $126 million because that's... That like that's just Kevin Spacey buying tickets for his family members to go to it. Like who who else actually bought a ticket to go see Billionaire Boys Club? I mean, we're looking at just a handful of people seeing this movie. I mean, it, okay, I think that it was only released in like nine cities or something right. like that. It had but a very limited release. There's no there's no way more than like fifty people saw this. But yeah, exactly. Forty, thirty, maybe. Let's also talk about. The worst possible name that could be made for a Kevin Spacey film about, after all the allegations of him literally diddling little boys. Yeah. Billionaire Boys Club. Billionaire Diddled Boys Club. So unfortunate. Honestly, I feel sorry for like all the other people that worked on this. It's a movie that's going to get completely buried. You know, it, and think about these people who signed on to do this thing. It was before all the Kevin Spacey shit came out, so they didn't really know what they were getting into. They're yeah. like, "Oh, so I get to work on a project with Kevin Spacey? Oh my god, yeah, like that's awesome." Can we call up uh, Christopher Plummer to maybe save this project? <laughs> what do we yeah. do? Oh, can, Give we him, can't another, him another Oscar nomination yeah. for just <laughs> just reshoot all the shit with apparently, Kevin Spacey. Apparently, he's not even the lead actor. It's uh. Oh. Um, Taron Edgerton, is that his name? Joel Edgerton? No, the kid from Kingsman. Oh, um, Ter- uh, I'm blanking on his name too, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it is, that- it is Taron, Taron Edgerton. Is he related to Joel Edgerton? Um. Guys, are we breaking news here on the podcast that you could just otherwise find is, out on Google? Is the, are the Edgertons the next, um, uh, Skarsgårds? The they're the next Baldwins. And that one of them will be good. I don't know. It, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think they're related. No. Well, uh, anyways. Hey, man. He's so that, the was, next, that was a pointless conversation for us to have. He's but. the next uh, Robin Hood. Do you know that? Yeah, I have heard about that. Yeah. Did you ever see Kingsman 2? No. Okay. Me neither. No. Oh, the, uh, the other person that's in Billionaire Boys Club is Ansel Elgort. Oh, Ansel's in it? Yeah, they, oh, they have the two top billing. Oh, Dude, Ansel. the poster for Billionaire Boys Club looks like a um, it it meets it's like a a horrible horrible amalgamation between Succession and um the um what's the Robin Williams uh po- Dead Poet Society? <laughs> yeah, just boys standing like, there in a row together with yeah. suits on. Yeah. Um. Do you think because uh, Kevin Spacey was a producer on Baby Driver, he was just like, "All right, yeah, we'll we'll cast you in this, or you, else you have to do this thing too. <laughs> You're gonna have to be oh, in this movie. It's gonna make fuck. less than five hundred dollars. You're gonna be paid in sandwiches that are catered by whatever local trash place is." Did you ever hear the theory that Nine Lives was like a blackmail film? If, you if brought you that up before. If you don't I... know, if you don't know, um, Nine Lives is a cat movie that Kevin Spacey played the cat in. Um, is that is that what it was? Did he voice the cat? Maybe I. 
It looked I, like he the might have been the owner piece of garbage. Of the cat. Who really knows? Yeah, it looked absolutely horrendous. So the general theory is that somebody knew about the stuff that Kevin Spacey was doing, and somebody was like, "Hey, so I'm going to take all this to public unless you actually do this cat movie and you sign on to do this." Okay, the premise of Nine Lives is a workaholic father who has his mind trapped inside his daughter's new cat. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> It grossed $57 million. (laughs) Well, it's doing better than Billionaire Boys Club. (laughs) So that was ended up being a better financial gain for him than this one. All right, let's get to what we've been watching. Do you want to get into Succession a little bit? Uh, Yeah, uh, we can start with that. Um, So I am up to episode five now. Um, Things are really starting to escalate. So you haven't seen it yet? I have not seen episode five yet. No, um, I just finished four earlier today. I've kind of been tempted to binge through it, which I know that you did. But I'm, I, I'm I, done with I know the that you, you finished Succession. I kind of... One of the things is that like I really, really enjoy the show, so I almost kind of want to like take my time with it savor and spread it. it out a little bit. Okay. Yeah, savor it. Like I like that I can... Especially HBO is kind of the best with this, where they give you each episode... It's the opposite of a Netflix model where each episode characters have their own arc in it. So you can kind of watch an episode and it's like you watch this little short film and you can kind of think about just that as one episode where you can binge through the whole thing and kind of get the whole grand picture of it. But I like to just be able to watch one or two episodes at a time and then kind of think on those episodes if you yeah. know what i mean i just binged through it because i couldn't i couldn't help myself <laughs> you couldn't stop you i was like resist. i was so into this show that i just had to race to the finish line and uh i obviously i want you to have the experience i'm not gonna go into details but all i'll say is that you're right that these characters are so well realized and that it's so entertaining to see their separate little subplots and their moments but this is kendall's story or uh kendall right yeah kendall yeah Yeah. yeah. this is kendall's story jeremy jeremy strong strong it's wholeheartedly his story Mm. and this man's performance is i i really hope he gets some emmy love do you think it's the best performance you've seen a tv show this year um, I like mean, I know we've we've talked really good things about um, Barry, about Bill Hader, mm-hmm. and Brian Tyree Henry in um, Atlanta. So it, it's definite. It's not a you know runaway number one, but it's definitely up there. It's yeah. definitely in the in the conversation. Well, as far as Emmys go, Succession came out after the Emmy. Day. So we wouldn't actually see any love for Succession until next, next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I don't want to like this to tamper with my expectations, which I don't think it will. But where do you put Succession as far as your favorite TV shows of the year? Now that you've finished through it, it's it's looking like top three material. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking like Atlanta, Barry, Succession. Yep. yep. Ooh. Yeah. Dude. All right. No, I mean, it's already like I'm like I said, I'm almost halfway through the series and. I haven't even gotten to what is the quote unquote crazy shit yet. Yeah, and it's, like it's it's really it's still just like it just it's an extremely well written show and otherwise shows that a certain scene a boardroom scene would come on I'd be like all right well this is the part that I tune mm-hmm. out I'm intrigued in it because it's everybody is so fucking conniving and just like yeah. undercutting each other constantly that it's it's great to watch like I never really. Uh, 
got all the way through Mad Men, but almost some of the dialogue seems Mad Men-esque where it's funny in that it's not meant to be humorous. It's people like really brutally insulting each other. Yeah. But you're just like saying they're like uncomfortably laughing while watching it. And everybody is just so many people are constantly always trying to only look out for themselves. Everybody is so selfish and trying to do whatever it takes to have one meeting with a person, have another meeting with a person, do whatever they can to kind of push their own agenda on stuff. And it's it's really, really well realized. I just can't wait to see where the show yeah, goes from here. I think the one of the best things about the way the show is written is that the the insults are almost like throwaway lines sometimes. Yeah. Like I I'm sure you could rewatch the whole season and pick out a whole bunch of lines that you didn't pick out the first watch through like i'm i'm actually excited to you know when season two comes around re-watching this season and having a really different experience watching it than the one i just had because the the dialogue is so rich and layered with like just really thought out lines and and insults and just throw away things that like would be throwaway but actually like contain a lot of intelligence and wit Mm. um i just i think it's masterful it's absolutely masterful and um as far as the performances go and the character work do you have a favorite like who's your that's that's what i was i was just about to say or girl um i'm still not really sold on shiv right now um i like i like her character but i'm not like Super as invested in their character. Really, my two highlights. I mean, of course, besides Kendall, because I mean, like you said, this is Jeremy Strong kills his performance. He oh, runs yeah. the show. But my two favorite cider characters are, without a doubt, Roman and Tom. Like every time they're on the screen, I am locked in. Like yeah. I'm just so into whatever's doing. Specifically, the stuff with Tom and um, Greg. Greg. Like <laughs> it's just Greg. it's so good. And like one of the things that makes it good is that you know that he's being so such a fucking asshole because he feels at least a little bit threatened by this whole thing that now there's a new family member in the fray that could eventually kind of try and make his way into the company and everything. So he's almost trying to do this whole thing of keeping him under his wing while also still throwing jabs at him. It just, it seems like he's has such complex uh, dynamics constantly to him. And then Roman just has the best lines of the show, in my opinion. Like, he, just Kieran Culkin is fucking hilarious in this show. Yeah, so I think um, Tom is a really fascinating character because he's using Greg how he sees fit. Like, he's in this dynamic with this family that he sees everyone being used by everyone else yeah like well, I, just he's not actually part other. of the family he married into the exactly. family so but he he's wants, not part of it but he wants to fit into that dynamic mm-hmm. and he sees greg as someone who is just ready to be tossed around and used and he's like this dude is a fucking idiot i can just do whatever i please and i can feel good about it by pushing him around and having him do my bidding and ultimately what this says about the whole cast and all these characters is that they're all terrible people. (laughs) This isn't a show about you feeling any sort of connection or relatability to any of these people. Like the show is not concerned with giving you a Don Draper 
or yeah. a, there, there or is a, no like a knight in shining armor to see right. through all the or like the people. anti-hero thing that like every other prestige drama prioritizes you know like you look at breaking mm-hmm. bad you look at the sopranos um even like a little bit with uh, Joe and Halton Catch yeah. Fire. It, it's kind of a staple character to have. And in this show, it's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't even think about relating to these people. They're all horrible. We're just going to give present them in a way that paints them as real people. You yeah, know? I mean, even like talking about Kendall himself, like Kendall always, his like whole facade is I'm trying to do what's best for the company, but he's just trying to be CEO of one of the biggest companies in the country. Like, you know, like it deep down, it's all selfish needs with him. Um, another character that I'm really fascinated to see where everything goes with is, uh, Marsha. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's wife. Sneaky. like she is like, I know, um, in episode three, um, and I don't want to get too, too into spoilers, especially cause I don't necessarily know completely where the series is going, but, uh, say a character falls ill and like she will not let the rest of the family go see them. Like she's just like so manipulated. Even though she's and, not even technically part of the family. Yeah, but she, again, she married into the family. Yeah. She's like observed all this stuff happening and now she's sliding her own selfish yeah. needs into it to try and better herself. I think, I think ultimately the, the thing that makes this show so entertaining and so compelling is that all these characters, they, because they're family, there is this really interesting dynamic where they're, they want to love each other, but the fact that there's so much money and power involved in their relationship makes them hate each other. So the, the, the power and the money uh, makes them so that they're ready to betray and undercut each other so that this hatred exists, but they're stuck together because they're all part of this family. So it's it's almost like they're, they don't have a choice but to constantly like fuck each other over and leverage each other and use what they want to think is love as a way to get a one-up on another person. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up because, I mean... When dealing with stuff with Logan, um, who was the CEO of this company, like you can tell there is a real genuine sense of love there and they do care about their father and these things that are going on. But that just kind of adds this whole dynamic, like like you said, like that they do they are constantly looking to betray yeah. each other to one up themselves. But they're they do still kind of have to weigh this balance of like, well, we do still care about this person. I don't want to think about business right now. I'm thinking about family. Yeah. He's literally your father. Those two things are constantly linked together when you have a family that is worth this much money. Yeah. Um, you have any hopes for the, you're almost at the halfway point. So I'll say that the first half is definitely not as good as the second half. I was very lukewarm on those first couple episodes it's kind of interesting because i already still like i'm kind of wondering where this show is going to go from here because it's slower but i don't really mind slow shows in that if they're well written enough that'll still keep me intrigued and with these characters they are still so well thought out um that I, i don't i've been trying not to really build expectations i'm kind of just waiting for this whole house of cards that 
each of them are building to slowly crumble and maybe one of them rise onto the top. Really, I just want Cousin Greg to be the CEO of the company. Yeah. That's that's my deep down biggest hope. Maybe they'll take like season five of succession for it to actually come to fruition, but hey we'll man, see. He We'll he, see. I'll hey, hey, say, hey, we'll see. He's not as stupid as I don't think that he is. He you just seemed he like he was kind of uh, thrust into this big city, big family kind of thing very quickly. But I'm, I, I'm just waiting to see. I'm again. I'm keeping my expectations yeah. just kind of to a Which minimum that, and seeing that, just along for the ride. That's kind of true for most of these characters. The fact that like they're not good at all at any of their jobs. They're just like anybody else. No matter what your paycheck is, how much zeros are on that everyone's kind of bad at what they're doing a little bit you might be really really good at one thing but ultimately the 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 scope of what you're trying to do you're just fucking figuring it out and all these people are constantly meeting the the ceiling of their own intelligence and and their own ability to do anything uh i think biggest winner uh from the show is a huge billionaire owners just in the actual real world because now this makes me like i'm just like so let me see what the owner of comcast is up to what's his family dynamics like it's one of the biggest winners of the show so i'm like ooh, i feel like i can relate to this these people maybe that's yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking it's crazy because i went into the show wanting to not like it just because of the premise rich white people yeah and yeah. now i'm like damn like everyone's just we're all just people we're yeah. all just fucking people. We're all kind of inadequate and a little a little dumb. <laughs> so you're saying that people have a natural inclination towards self-destruction. Oh, is that a common theme in something else? Yeah, so I actually uh, did a rewatch this week mm-hmm. of Annihilation. Okay. Damn, is, I think that was my first transition. That was oh, amazing. My God, thank I think you. I think you pulled Oof. it off. I'm like I started to sweat a little bit whenever I was coming up with that in my head. So this so, came out back in February. February, Marchish, yeah, earlier in the year. And if you guys remember from our review of it, I was not super high on this movie. Coming in, I am a huge, huge fan of Ex Machina. Oh, yeah. Like, Ex Machina, I think, is one of the best sci-fi films of the 2010s. Like, I really think that that movie is... probably one of the best films of the 2010s. Yeah, no, I mean, without... I meant of the... One of the best sci-fi films of the 21st 21st century, but especially of the 2010s, I think that movie is an absolute masterpiece on almost every level for being so such a small scale. And going into Annihilation... I had never read uh, Jeff Vandermeer's book about the subject, but I had a little bit of familiarity. And my expectations for this movie were so high to the point that whenever I saw it, we I was saw a little the, bit. We saw the screener. We together. saw the screener for it. We saw it a little bit early, and I was a little bit disappointed by it. Like much like probably most people at that screener, I still, I still enjoyed the movie, but overall, I just wasn't. I didn't really it didn't click with me as much as I wanted to. Um I'm happy you say on a second viewing Oh, I, so this was only your second viewing? Yeah, this is only the oh, second time that I okay, saw it. Okay. Um I definitely got more appreciation out of it. I'm glad um, I'm glad you got a second viewing because I, I got a second viewing too. Before I'm pretty sure before we did our review mm-hmm. I, I got a chance to see it twice. Yeah. Um and 
I mean, I did your opinion improve upon a second viewing or I mean, I loved it. I loved it from the start, but watching it a second time, I got a chance to kind of solidify that opinion Mm. and really find a lot, a lot to love. And I think that the movie definitely is flawed and there's a lot of things that could have been done better, but just the fact that a movie like this came out with a star like Natalie Portman and a creative mind like Alex Garland behind it with a budget to that scale, I think is very, very admirable. Okay, so I want to get into a little bit of spoilers of this movie upon viewing. Yeah, the so, if, so if you haven't seen spoiler it, alert. I definitely recommend this movie. Um, I feel like the main reason why I didn't add, I still enjoyed it the first time, but it was lower on my list of movies for the year just because I came in with fucking sky-high expectations for it, which is kind of my own yeah, fault. and it's been a long time since then. So. And definitely, I remember, I definitely recommend seeing this movie. If you have surround sound, that's man, score, oh man. man. Wah, 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 I wah. think that that's probably the best score of the year. Oh, wow. I think that would go that, because even just outside of the main wubs that are yeah. kind of iconic, just this really, like, awesome like alt j style acoustic guitar that you have when they're walking yeah. around the shimmer is so so good um but anyways i want to get into a little bit of spoilers for this movie oh, i love it too i recommend it for sure um so spoilers for annihilation real quick um still one of my biggest things with this movie is the framing device i i hate that I absolutely like. I wish that there was a way. I want to recut the movie where I completely take, take Ben yeah. Wong's character out of the film. Yeah, because it's his character is completely pointless. After seeing it the second time and knowing everything that happens, he's literally there just to be like, "So, what happened to this person? I don't know." Okay, let's go well, back. Can and you see. explain this thing? <laughs> no. Like I, what? Like it's just—it literally takes you out of the movie so hard. I think that was an attempt to try to make the movie a little bit more accessible to mainstream audiences, and and not have it be so artsy. Because if you take that out, the movie becomes very, very abstract, which obviously we love. But they wanted they—it was such a big financial investment that they wanted to try to take that risk. And I'm pretty that sure that's back. how the book is written too. But like, still, just as a movie goer, like I just wish that it just—they took that entire character out and we were just there with Natalie Portman in the Shimmer while all this is happening. And the only time we ever see his character is at the very end, whenever mm-hmm. she comes out, and you get one kind of big scene. I, that's. Still, after watching it, I'm still, like, less frustrated with those things. I think I still hold a little bit of frustration towards this movie because I feel like this movie had the potential of being perfect, which I don't think very... I think very, very few movies get to that point. There's just a couple of choices that are in here um, that take away from it. But other than that, I really feel like the potential was there for this to be, like, one of the best sci-fi films of all time. Like, it really, talking about the narrative device, um, some of just the the, the choices with, because, um, I mean, one, one thing I wanted to bring up is, especially in our reviewing, this, the dialogue in this movie is incredible. Like, my favorite parts aren't whenever there's a weird mutated monster coming after them, the horror movie elements. It's when they're sitting there on the boat, like, paddling together, talking about how, we're all like broken people whenever her and um i'm blanking on uh the actress's name but uh 
whenever Natalie Portman and uh, one of the other girls are talking about how this whole idea of oh no, it's whenever she's uh, laying in bed talking with Oscar Isaac's character, talking about this whole idea that um, getting old and aging is part of human nature, but it's not. It's a fault in our genes that our genes are constantly mutating and constantly. Uh, um, we're constantly having mitosis and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that's why we age and that's why we eventually die. That's not just a part of life. That's actually a genetic fault in us as uh, biological species. Just certain aspects of that like are so fucking cool. And I just wanted just all of that and less of the, well, we have to make some money somehow. So yeah. let's over explain certain aspects of this. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that they made that choice, but I completely understand why they did it, just because the movie costs so much money to make, and they wanted to make it as accessible to people as possible. Um, unfortunately, I don't think the film made that much money. Yeah, I, it's still, the, I mean, and overseas, they actually sold the rights to Netflix. Right, overseas, I forgot so about that. They didn't that. even make a, a world box office or anything like that. Yeah, but, but that probably that Netflix deal probably at least made them break even. Yeah. I'm sure I'm I mean, sure it they was, worked it was a smart out. business move. Um but there's just and even I had more of a respect on like a few different a- uh aspects watching it a second time. Uh one of them was Jennifer Jason Lee as uh, Dr. Ventress, her character cuz it kind of took me a little bit to get used to her character. Well, just the fact that you know that she's dying from she, the start. Yeah, you know that she's dying and she's kind of going through all this stuff and also with the character uh Anya who uh, has the moment where she turns on the group and everything and oh, yeah. there's one small aspect it's just like a little shot where it's a shot of her hand and you see her fingerprints moving yeah. like she's literally like changing yeah. and that's what kind of makes her go insane which stuff like that is like so so cool and that's something that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on a second viewing um another complaint that I have is after watching it the first time it felt like it took them way too long to get in the shimmer. Did you know it takes them 29 minutes until they actually go inside the shimmer? That's too long. The first act. That's too long of the first act to set everything up. Yeah. I still think that it could, a lot of that could be cut out. Um, I have, I, I'm, I like the cutaways to Anne Hathaway and her story, especially with the development of Idris Elba's um, character. Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman, not Anne Hathaway. <laughs> Natalie Ocean's Portman. Ocean's 8. Because, well, I mean, because that kind of adds this whole thing of... One, the best line in the entire movie is, almost none of us commit suicide, but almost all of us are self-destructive. Hmm. And that's one of the things that it, that's like the you whole see every single person has all these extremely self-destructive tendencies where they're I mean, why always are they even just... going into the shimmer in the first place you know yeah because i mean it's they know it's a suicide people always mission. say yeah but they always say like oh man this kind of thing is like a suicide mission or something like that but it's not even necessarily that you want to kill yourself it's just that you're willing to do the things that's why people end a happy relationship that's why people are willing to leave a job that they're happy with because human nature is naturally self-destructive and when the movie leans into those aspects, I think that it hits on all, all cylinders. Like, I feel like those highs equal the highs of the final 15 minutes of the movie, in my opinion, just from a pure, like intellectual stimulating perspective, which is why I loved Ex Machina so much is because there is so much, um, 
intellectual stimulation that happens yeah, with that script. The, the final kind of alien choreographed dance number that happens where it's kind of like this beautiful fight between Natalie Portman and, mm-hmm. and this doppelganger alien that is the theme of the film visualize mm-hmm. that is a version of her destructing de- being destructive to her actual mm-hmm. self it's self-destruction it's it, it's this alien that's trying to learn her movements and in doing so is hurting her and it's preventing her from yeah. escaping the lighthouse exactly that is her that that it's like you said like that is her the negative sides of her personality like incarnated into an actual being and then just the visuals of all of that of her going down that wormhole and and what what is it even that happens she's bleeding and her blood gets sucked she's into the, staring the into this because i mean um jeffrey jason lee's character she becomes becomes this alien. vortex alien like yeah. thing and um natalie portman just goes like staring into it and it it just needs like one drop of her blood to go inside of it for it to basically become yeah. her, which um, if you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this part, this sounds like <laughs> fucking gibberish right now, but that is my favorite scene from it's a movie. It's amazing. It's my favorite scene from a movie in the year. Like without it's a doubt, like it's the way that it's all executed, how it ties into the story the and the score. actual themes, the score that's, just it's literally picture perfect like yeah. i could not have which is visualized why, that any better which is why i love the film so much because despite some of the storytelling issues it's still a big budget studio movie that put an abstract sci-fi art house sequence in its third act mm. and sadly no movie ever does that yeah yeah i mean i do have more of an appreciation for that i this definitely is going to rise up my top list of the year Good. because i had it pretty low i ended up i think whenever it first came out i ended up giving it like a seven out of ten i still would probably put it around i mean i gave it like eight, an eight yeah like an eight maybe but it's still like it just bothers me just a little bit that I just want to see like Alex Garland make a cut of this movie where it cuts out some of those parts, maybe extends certain yeah. other sequences. I'm sure there's there's probably a side of him that didn't want to have that aspect to it. Yeah, I mean the entire Ben Wong character kind of goes against everything that Alex Garland has kind of done before. But mm-hmm. I mean he got a big budget to do something like this. This is a pretty popular novel. This is a best selling novel. So he had to make this with certain studio standards behind it. Did you know that he's working on an FX show? Oh, no, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Actually, I think he signed an overall deal with FX, and the first show that's coming of it is called Devs, and it stars Nick Offerman, and it's about some, like, cryptic techno conspiracy shit. So, Does he have a mustache? Oh, Nick Offerman? I'm sure he does. Okay. Good. Actually, I think he might go for the full beard on this one. Okay. Do you have any, I can, I can do you have, full beard. Do you have any final thoughts on Annihilation? Um, I just like I'm if if you saw Annihilation once and you weren't as high on it like I was, I definitely recommend buying the Blu-ray and rewatching it. Um, I wanted to have time to go through the special features because there are actually a lot of special features behind the scenes stuff, behind the scenes stuff, commentary. Um, yeah, I kind of uh, I really want to go back through and kind of listen to the Alex Garland commentary to see what his kind of thoughts are on a lot yeah, of this stuff. I'm curious. I about feel like that'd be really too. fascinating. He has a great commentary on Ex Machina. If you've never listened to that one, that's it. Kind of 
he's one of those guys that you listen to him talk like over the movie and you can tell that he has meticulously thought out every aspect of his film. Yeah. Which is, that's that's what you want from somebody the, who's making a movie. The big difference between this, uh, between Annihilation and Ex Machina is that Annihilation is just a much more ambitious film. And because of that, it's going to be more difficult to 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 achieve the overall goals of this ambitious film. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why it doesn't work as well. It, it's a lot tougher to make it work because yeah. it's more ambitious. So a smaller film like Ex Machina is going to work better because of its nature, because it's not trying to go for like, you know, bigger, more effects heavy more intricate plot right. driven things. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about one last thing before we take a break. You, yeah. you saw a little, uh, yeah. So, um, some, some, <laughs> thanks to AMC stubless, AMC stubs, a list, excuse me. <clears throat> um, they have, uh, three movies a week, as you guys know. And one of the movies that you can go see, well, really all three are IMAX films. Or Dolby. Or Dolby, anything like that. Any uh, premium screening for a film. So I was kind of debating on which movie I was going to see this week. I figured we're probably going to do a review for Crazy Rich Asians next week. So I held that one off. So instead I went to go see the movie Alpha that came out this week. So this is one of the many dog films One of like three (laughs) three dog films coming out in the next month. Yeah. Um, And... I went into it having pretty much zero expectations. <laughs> Somebody, I just like, sound line people are like, yeah, I mean, it's really pretty. Um, so that was my expectation going into it. I actually had a pretty good time with this movie. Um, it's not going to, like, change cinema or anything <laughs> like that. But is it, I isn't will it the say, origin story of dogs? Yeah, it's basically um, a boy, uh, Kata, uh, who basically domesticates the first wolf whenever he's out here on his own um he basically has like a near-death experience his tribe including his father leave him and he has to find his way back across hundreds of miles by himself back to his own tribe um and the story itself is eh, it's fine like you can take it or leave the story really the biggest thing about that sold this movie for me is this is probably like one of the best 3D IMAX movies I've ever seen. Oh, it's 3D. Yeah. Oh, like shit. really like this movie was fucking gorgeous. That's what kept me still invested in the movie cuz there it's mostly almost all done um with visual storytelling. Like there's very very little dialogue in it just because they're speaking in a different language so it's subtitled stuff and for a chunk of the movie this character is by himself. So um we have just these huge huge open shots i know a lot of it was shot in canada and stuff like that um but with a re is it a real wolf or is it a cgi wolf um the actual wolf himself and like the close-ups of the two of them that's definitely a real dog um there's some stuff that's cgi trickery but the cgi looks really good really the thing that one of the things that impressed me the most is this wasn't a film that was shot with IMAX cameras. They did post-IMAX work on it, which usually is pretty rough. Um, it's usually a lot of making shit pop out in your yeah, face yeah. that's unnecessary. But 
Um, I can't remember who this guy, the guy who was the cinematographer and the director from this film, they really made nothing of note before now. Albert Hughes was uh, the director. He directed the Book of Eli, but that's uh, it. Oh, the Denzel blind thing. That's Idris Elba, but... Uh, the Book of Eli? Isn't the Book of Eli? Oh. It's Denzel, dude. Oh my, no, 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 okay, no. I he guess made, we can't talk about made, Black Clansman. He made another movie. He made another movie with Idris Elba that just popped up next year. Um, anyways, um, so he uh, he uh, gang sidetracked. This movie is like absolutely gorgeous. There's a uh, one of the my favorite shots in it is there's a shot when the tribe is sitting together and the 3d effects on the glasses are the embers from the fly fire kind of floating past the camera screen and the camera slowly pans up into the sky and like the embers kind of turn into the stars on this night. Like it really is fucking gorgeous looking like it's some of the best, um, one of the best looking films of the year. The things that bring it down though, it, 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 it justifies taking mission impossible spot in the IMAX theater. No. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's definitely more of a visual feat <laughs> than Mission Impossible. Okay. Not more of a uh, physical feat than Mission Impossible. Gotcha. Um, the real tragedy here is that Mile 22 was the thing that took Mission Impossible out of a lot of IMAX and oh, Dolby theaters. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Which I did a hard pass on that one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the acting in this movie is pretty rough um specifically from the boy he doesn't really know how to act he's kind of a no-name guy um the wolf acting was great good job by that pup give him lots of treats this movie actually has come under i didn't realize before i went and saw it this movie's actually coming under kind of a lot of heat from PETA specifically because uh Apparently, while they were filming it, um, there's like one scene where there's a bunch of water buffaloes. Apparently, like four buffaloes died while they were filming that scene. So that's not cool at all. So they were they had a wrangler like wrangle some buffalo. Yeah. So there's no no animals were harmed in the making of this film. Tag at the end. They should have just done what the Revenant did and just put CGI buffalo in. Yeah, it's kind of. Yeah. I mean, there's some. You can tell that they're real buffalo that are in there. And I will say, um, actually, it's funny you brought up the Revenant because a lot of the shots and stuff, this journey that this boy goes on, that was my the first thing movie that came to my mind was the Revenant. Uh, lots of really open shots. This place mm-hmm. takes place walking twenty thousand years ago in northern Europe. So sure. it's like. Um, especially there's like whenever the snow starts up, it's just him just like trudging through open fields of snow that seem like they go on for hundreds of miles. Um, so visually this movie is incredible. You might want to boycott this movie though, if you like animals. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really up to you. Um, no, but this actually, I do think that as just a movie about a boy and his dog, um, I think this movie is pretty effective. Like there's moments towards the end of the film where they're both struggling to get through here and they're each kind of are helping each other survive. And it's not changing the game or anything like that, but it's still effective. I overall, I'd give this movie like a six out of 10. It has a, it has an 84 on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad, I had horrible expectations going into it. So maybe if you have decent expectations, you won't like it as much, but I, I are there moments that was good. Are there moments of like, 
action and peril and they're actually suspense. there are um it's kind of iffy uh, some of them work better than others there's uh one uh one of the shots that's my favorite shot is uh it's an overhead shot of uh the boy and the wolf the wolf's name is alpha by the way so it's the boy and alpha <gasps> um yeah because he's alpha dog um of them like working together to cut to capture a warthog and it's probably all cgi but it looks really cool it's an overhead shot and it'll be him like whistling and then they kind of trap it around and it has them like missing a few times a continuous shot of him like stabbing the ground around the boar and they'll they just kind of trap him in this circle and eventually get him nice so there is some really cool action stuff that's in there that's cool um yeah, so, so I mean, if you have AMC Stubbs A list, I would recommend doing it for the IMAX experience. Otherwise, it's kind of hit and miss. Yeah. If you want it, I'd say this is definitely better. We've, over the last few years, we've gotten a lot of these like spectacle uh, prehistoric movies with no substance, like 10,000 BC stuff like that. That was a while back. Um, what was the Mel Gibson movie Ten, that came 10, out of you? Apocalypto. Apocalypto. Those that and Ten Thousand BC were both like ten years ago. Okay, so it's been a while since we've had these um, spectacle type of movies, yeah. which I, mean, I feel like Jungle this is what Book, it's going for. Jungle Book. No, but Jungle Book is like based on previous IP. Right. I mean, like as far as like prehistoric original stories go, um, and. I think that this is better than it's better than 10,000 BC. Hey, it's better than Apocalypto. It's, it's only 97 minutes. Yeah. So it's exactly as long as it needs to be because yeah. you can't carry a movie that's just based on no real plot <laughs> with all pretty <laughs> pictures for too long. All right, we're we're going to take a quick break and when we get back we're talking Black Klansmen. Be right back. Sometimes, kiss it go sometimes, kiss it go sometimes, spirit, 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 around, just moving around, kiss it go sometimes, kiss it go sometimes, kiss it go, spirit, yeah, that's the king, stop that movement. So, I went and saw Black Klansman and um, I just enjoying the whole time but my audience around me was being like so silent and I was like what's going on here like this is a great movie why is nobody like vibing? nobody's laughing at the jokes nobody's doing anything and it wasn't until the lights came on in the house that I realized it was all clans members in the crowd oh in front of me it was all like in the hood and everything and then David Duke stood up with a cross yeah he stood up he lit a cross on fire and then played Birth of a Nation behind him. And then they just went fucking crazy. And I stuck around for it. I loved it. Just got my membership card in the mail. They have some really good points to make. Well, see, I, I thought I saw Black Klansmen. But for some reason, they just started playing Birth of a Nation. So I was like, well, I mean, this is supposed to be one of the greatest films ever made. It's supposed to be like the birth, not just the birth of a nation, but the birth of cinema. The birth of white nation cinema. Yeah, so I was like, well, I, I may as well watch it. And I was like, yep, yeah, I guess yeah, that's pretty racist there. <laughs> Three and a half hours of just straight up evil triumphing. Yep. And and, and we're back. Um, 
Yeah. So before we talk about this movie, do you want to talk about a little bit of the hate specifically led by Boots Riley against this movie? I I saw a headline, but I don't know exactly what he said. So um, we should say um, Black Klansman is the most politically charged movie since last month. Um, So (laughs) thanks. I was rehearsing that in the bathroom. Um, Yeah. So uh, we talked about Sorry to Bother You on the podcast. Um, It's very much, uh, they definitely share a lot of themes about, the culture in today's society. But while black Klansman kind of leans into those themes and tries to make it more pertinent, uh, boots Riley was sorry to bother. You made it more artistic and took it to the fucking furthest extreme possible. Also, I think, I think sorry to bother you is about like 10 things. Yeah. Black Klansman is about like pretty much one thing. So really, uh, there started to be a little bit of internet backlash against this movie kind of championed by Boots Riley um, talking about how um, we'll get into the specific spoilers of this movie, but generally the premise is about, it's based on a true story. Um, Ron, oh, the main, yeah, yeah. The main character. Ron Stallworth, yeah, um, Ron who Stallworth. is the first uh, black cop in the city, in this Colorado city. Colorado and Springs. He, he finds a way uh, to infiltrate a local KKK affiliation. Mm-hmm. as a well, black man it's funny how it happens in the film because he basically just is sitting there in his new brand new office and just sees like a public ad in the classifieds in the yeah. paper for like basically like hey we're looking for new uh kkk members call us he just calls him up and he's just like i hate n-words they're dirty <laughs> <laughs> and just gives them this good old like southern voice you know, to it i keep i kept thinking about um sorry to bother you with the white the voice. white voice yeah because he just he has this very like matter of fact kind of whitish voice throughout the film but he's not like using it yeah in any effect he it's just the way he talks and also yeah and i kind of i talk about this uh specifically whenever we get into spoilers but a lot of ways i think black klansman succeeds on a lot of stuff that more so than sorry to bother you does in that it doesn't make it like white voice has to be Patton Oswalt, the whitest person in the world talking. It can literally be a person. If you like don't slur your words and talked uh, like matter of factly and with good diction, then that means that you have quote unquote white voice and not black voice, which I feel like that is more of an important message to send than like, literally dubbing over somebody's voice with yeah. a white actor's voice. And, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think the very, very end of the film makes... It kind of wraps that little thread up very nicely. Mm. And there's this through line that you're thinking of, like the white voice, and there's this moment at the end of the film where it kind of wraps that up in, in almost the perfect way. Um, but let's 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 stay to the the broader scope of things as we start out um, because I do want to get to spoilers as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. I think the bulk of the discussion is very spoiler heavy. So I'll just start out with my overall thoughts. Um, I thought this movie was really, really great. Um, but there's a big part of me that is very conflicted in whether or not I actually loved it because it prioritizes making a statement and being about something 
over actually developing its characters and letting you in on the storytelling more. So the 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 plot of the movie is essentially these cops infiltrating the local KKK chapter and keeping tabs on them on them and following a potential violent plot that they're mm. working on. And I think that is all great. Um I think what this movie does best is in how it creates a certain feeling and a certain mood in the audience and how it uses our expectations and our knowledge of of cinema and of um, current events and just society to elicit a certain response. Um, this movie has a lot of really empowering things to say about um, black culture and black people and black society uh, in a way that's very effective, I think. I don't think this movie is scattered or um, ineffective in any of the points that it's trying to make. I think it, it makes them very, very well. And, and I'll say I'll say right now, the last like minute of this film, the last like five minutes of this film are so harrowing that I was complete I was struggling to breathe with my mouth open and my my hands to my face like in absolute shock of what I was seeing um but the for, for the bulk of the movie I definitely struggled with connecting to the characters and to getting to know them and and to care caring about them as people. I cared about their motivations and what they were trying to do in the context of the plot and the story and like what the whole mission of the undercover investigation was. But I I I didn't feel like I ever got a chance to know who Adam Driver and um John um John David Washington. David Washington, who their characters, Ron Stallworth and um, Flipper and Flip Zimmerman. Flip. Who 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 are they? What what are they? What are they like? You know, it, 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 that piece was missing for me. I still loved the movie. Don't get me wrong. I really do believe that this is definitely one of the best films of the year. It's it's an important movie. It's a movie that should be seen and it should be discussed. And it's way better than Sorry to Bother. You're way more confident and expertly crafted. There was just a big piece that was missing for me. That's 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 a fair criticism of it. I mean, like you said about this making being more about um, sending a message in the story itself, that's been something that Spike Lee has struggled with his entire career. That's why a lot of people hate Spike Lee for his movies being too pretentious where it doesn't actually matter what the movie itself is about. It's about the statement that Mm -hmm. the movie is making. It's something that he's always done. Um, I will say I do agree with some of your criticisms, um, but overall I did really love this movie. Like I really think this is without a doubt, this is his most accessible movie since inside man, which have you ever seen inside man? Yeah, that's Denzel, right? That's Denzel. I think I have. That's a that's a really really yeah. fun movie. I that was like 2006 or so. I definitely want to revisit um, a lot of Spike Lee's stuff because the only movie that is fresh in my mind when I think of his films is Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I 
I'm sure I saw Malcolm X on cable yeah. back in the day, but I, I really got to revisit his, his filmography. Yeah, I, I want to go back because I've seen, I saw She's Gotta Have It a long time ago. I've seen Malcolm X in the last five or so years, and that's an amazing movie, but I've never seen a Do the Right Thing. Like, I need to go back through a little bit of Spike Lee's filmography. He's made but a lot. Yeah, he has shit. made a lot of movies. And specifically, the last few years, he hasn't really made anything that's made much of an impact um overall Dude, i just he made he made that old boy remake yeah, that everyone the, hated yeah <laughs> which why would you try and americanize old boy but um regardless uh i really think that this movie is absolutely incredible it's so poignant in its message even if you can say like there's a scene where they literally are talking about there's like nobody who's that hateful can ever make it into the white house. And it's like literally just like slapping the audience in the face. But I never really minded that it, it never came off oddly enough, even though this is being more heavy handed as something like, sorry to bother you. Um, I never found it as necessarily pretentious, uh, to use like the actual definition of the word for its message and what it's trying to say to you. Um, and that, this all felt like it was more important than something like Sorry to Bother You was. Like, it felt like... It was more focused. This literally came out um, on the exact date a year after the Carolina... The stuff that happened in Carolina with... Virginia? Virginia. No, no, no. It was in... Yeah, Charlottesville. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, a, a year to the day... It was yeah. released after... The uh, white the white nationalist uh, gathering. Yeah. And, I mean, that's all very, very purposeful, and you can see that in what he's trying to do. Um, I do understand your criticisms about the characters themselves, uh, but I feel like I still got enough with their motivations being very clear. Um, I mean, even with Flip, just the fact that he is he's a white person but he's still jewish and he's having to be the one who's actually going in infiltrating the kkk to i mean find there, there's there's out. a moment like, that he has where you see how fucking good of an actor adam driver is where he starts to like open up a little bit about what he's going through you know and a little bit of his internal monologue and it's like I was hoping for a little bit more of that because I, I really love that moment yeah. where he kind of the camera just is this really nice close up on him and you get insight into what he's feeling about all this. Um, I was I was really, really impressed with John David Washington's performance. I thought that he gave an incredible performance. Yeah, like I, I agree. bought in it whenever it was announced the casting. It was kind of one of those things where. I assumed he would be good, like just serviceable to good, but also, I mean, Spike Lee has a relationship with Denzel. You don't know if this is just like, all right, yeah, I'm going to throw your son a bone. He's trying to get into the game. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with John David Washington, but he was, acting wasn't his first love. He originally tried to be in football, and he actually, oh, he was like a star running back at Morehouse, um, a college, and he actually, that's crazy. he was undrafted, played with a couple NFL teams, tried to try out, and then he tore his Achilles one day, and that kind of changed his career. They told him, like, it's going to take him at least a year of rehab, and then maybe he'll get back in there, but he probably won't ever be the same, and one of his friends who later went on to become his agent said like, Hey, so I have a thing, a audition for you if you want to go for it. And then that kind of changed his whole career. And he's a recurring, um, actor on ballers. Yeah. Yeah. He's showed up on ballers a few times. He's actually his first, uh, 
his first uh, credit on IMDb is he's actually he's an extra in Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. So, Student in Harlem classroom. Yeah, <laughs> oddly enough. But I just, I really, really enjoyed this film. Like, I really, I can't recommend it enough for people to go out and see this movie. Like, this is the most important movie of the year. I feel like this is a movie that we have to see, especially when we had people just this past week who they were like, Nazis are planning a march and everything that it got canceled. But the fact that we were about to have a march of Nazis on the White House, and that's kind of what America's come to. A few people still showed up. There are like a like a dozen or so people that were still marching. Yeah, but I mean, originally there was plans for hundreds of them to come, and then there was going to be thousands of protesters there as well. Like it's just the fact that in 2018 we have to be reminded that Nazis are bad is kind of fucking wild, but yeah. that's the point where we're at. And I feel like this is a movie that needs to be kind of a, like throwing a bucket of cold water in the like face of America. Up. Yeah, like literally like... <laughs> this shit is happening. This is something that's happening that has already happened before. Like history repeats itself and you're like watching it happen in front of you. And I, I think Spike Lee does an amazing job at that, I, at putting it in your face and, and making you feel like this is this is fucked up and, you know, you're juxtaposing the events of, what is this, 1960s Colorado with our present day and how very little has changed. I think this film, like, really does a great job at that. And it's certainly very serious subject matter here, but the movie's very entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. There's some laugh out loud moments. There's some very charming performances. Um, there's, there's a lot to enjoy here, but at the end of the day, this is a very serious movie about some fucked up real, real shit that happened. I mean, even the, the, one of the first things that comes up on the screen is like this joint is based on a real on real fucking shit basically yeah paraphrasing yeah yeah um i i just say i was not ready for this movie whenever i saw it because the trailers make it look really funny and even when this movie whenever i first heard about it uh several months ago first thing to come to my mind is the classic dave Chappelle sketch of the the black kkk member yeah. the blind black KKK is Chappelle member. credited in this um i don't know if he is um but fun fact this script actually was originally written for jordan peele Oh, and he couldn't. He didn't and have he, time. To he do didn't it. have all. The, he didn't have time to do it. But he called up Spike Lee because I guess him and Spike are pretty tight. And he was just like, "If anybody else is gonna make this, I want you to make it." Yeah. Well, Spike Lee has uh, writing credit on it too. Yeah. 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 Um, that I know. I mean, I'm sure that he helped write. But just the whole idea, whatever that was like pitched. It was originally pitched to Jordan Peele, but it's based on a book by the mm-hmm. original. Yeah, by Ron Stallworth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That he wrote, which is it's just. I we got to get into spoilers before I can specifically talk a lot of things because where the story goes is not where I anticipated going and while there is lots of really funny laugh out loud moments this is still a heavy movie yeah like it's still fucking heavy definitely if you're planning on going to see this know that it's not a comedy no yeah like there are funny aspects to the film but like at the end of the day this is something that really happened. And it's some serious fucked up shit that speaks to our time now. Um, And in the spoilers section that we're about to get into, 
I definitely want to get into the parallels with the birth of a nation because taking film classes in college, they taught you D.W. Yeah. Griffith and the birth of a nation. It's like a standard for every like introductory film course. That's like D.W. Griffith basically invented cinema yeah. with the birth of a nation and with intolerance. So it's like, even to this day, he, this this film is ingrained in cinema to the point where it's like every every intro to film student knows exactly what birth of a nation and dw griffith are yeah it's that's kind of wild to me and i mean eh, like he i know that birth of a nation did make all kinds of incredible things specifically one style that is actually exhibited in the movie in a really awesome way uh that involves birth of a nation yeah but um just the fact that he had all these kind of tech technical aspects that went on to revolutionize cinema but then whenever you actually look at the subject matter itself it's literally the kkk or the heroes but it's they write in like the knights in shining armor which went on to make all these cowboy movies and everything else which went on to make fuck if we're skipping four decades movies like star wars like they all kind of draw their roots back to dw griffith and the birth yeah, of the nation because that film invented the language of cinema the mm-hmm. the things that just make up the basic building blocks of like a close up a wide a, a cutting from one shot to another yeah. cutting between different sequences like all of that was basically invented by by DW Griffith's films but when it comes down to it what cinema does is it gives you a perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have by experiencing that film but when you use that power for evil and when you use it to give an evil perspective, then it becomes a tool used basically, as we see here, to recruit members of the KKK. Yeah. Like before the birth of a nation came out, the KKK was done. Yeah, they were dormant it, for years and years. And then this movie, D.W. Griffith releases this movie Everyone sees it. It becomes this it's the first huge, blockbuster. Yeah. huge, huge thing at the beginning of the 20th century. And the KKK comes back in 1915-ish. And now we're here 100 years later. And we're still dealing with the repercussions of this film that's still being taught in theaters and in, in college. And, you know, Spike Lee even has a relationship with this because he was a student at NYU and he, one of his student short films was an answer to The Birth of a Nation. And it was a story about a black director who was tasked with uh, remaking the film. And he basically called out all the racist shit in this movie. And NYU threatened to kick him out <laughs> for calling out uh, D.W. Griffith. And it's like, dude, like he's, you know... Spike Lee's probably what in his fifties or something at this point. Uh, so I think he's older than that at this point. He's been fighting this but fight still, for a yeah. long time, but I think the biggest he's sixty one. Yeah. I think the biggest accomplishment in Black Klansman is that he finally did it. He found a way to make a movie that fucking sticks it to DW Griffith and to the birth of a nation in such a perfect way. This movie that has like rooted itself in cinema and in the study of cinema 
and has been spewing all of this hatred and and bigotry because the fact that like this movie is such an integral part of the art of filmmaking means that it just it it won't go away. It's like, it, it's been here for a hundred years. It it's will not be going anywhere. It now. will be in this in the history books for forever. But it's about really evil evil subject matter, and he has found. He he crafted with Black Klansman, he crafted a film that is able to just fucking call that shit out like it is. And I think that's what's even more so impressive about that is that not only does he make a movie that's making a statement about this uh what's considered by all pretty much a iconic film, but he made Black Klansman is like it's a pretty like like it's something that wide audiences can watch and enjoy and, and take something from. <laughs> like this isn't like it actually is making decent money at the box office. Like people are wide audiences are going out and seeing this movie. I think like that's what's even more impressive, especially because Spike Lee hasn't been on the best run of films lately. So the fact that he was able to make something that is so poignant and also uh, reach mass audiences, I think is just kind of perfect. I really think that, I I haven't seen like all of Spike Lee's films, but I feel like this is really up there with some of his best work that he's ever made. I I hope that this kind of sparks a, a little bit of a resurgence for him, and that he can maybe get some acclaim, you know, yeah. some awards acclaim, and really get people to start talking about him again, and and, and have. I know I'm definitely gonna go back and try to rewatch, yeah, um, do the right thing, and and go back through his catalog as much as I can. Um, but let's give some final thoughts um, before we get into spoilers. Um, I was trying to look up if Chappelle has um, r- any producing credit on this, but he doesn't. But Jason Blum does, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, can't, I can't really recommend this movie enough. It, it's definitely flawed. But it's just one of those movies that like should be seen by the masses just like Birth of a Nation was. If Birth of a Nation, when that movie came out, was seen by everyone and it was such a big sensation. It was screened in the White House. Exactly. Then, uh, okay, let's be real. Black Klansman is not going to screen in <laughs> no, this White not, House. No, it's not, but it fucking should. I really <laughs> hope that Donald Trump sees Black Klansman so he can get a series of tweets about uh, the way that he is depicted yeah. in this movie. I think that that's going to be incredible. Uh, but I mean, he's not depicted, but he is included yeah. in some form. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll bring up some of my more um, detailed criticism and spoilers, but I'll just say... Please go out and see this movie. It's not an easy film to stomach. There's there's a lot of tough shit to see here. Um, but it is undoubtedly a important piece of mm. cinematic art. And I don't think that, like, I actually really want to rewatch. I've only seen Black Klansman the one time, but I really want to rewatch it in a way that, like, movies like 12 years a slave a lot of times it's like that was great i never want to see that again though I, like where it's just I, overly I, depressing yeah and like i honestly i fell asleep during 12 years of slave. <laughs> so um but black Klansman, i do feel like it is even if certain aspects of it are very very heavy i do feel like it is overall entertaining um this movie, I think, right now is in my top five movies of the year. Oh, wow. I really, I really, really love this movie. I'd give it 
probably like an 8.5, maybe even a light 9. I'm I'm waiting to see how it's going to do on rewatches, but after the first time, I was... We'll talk about it in spoilers, but the end had me so brutally stunned that I was just sitting there in silence and just like tears were like yeah. kind of streaming down my cheek. I'd probably give it I'd probably give it an eight. Um I think um yeah, I think a, an eight is, is is a good good uh rating for me. And as far as the, the top ten goes, I'm I'm gonna have to really think about that one because I do generally believe that it should be in the consideration as one of the best movies of the year just because of how effectively Spike Lee made a statement with this movie. So I do have to look at it as a movie and it has its issues as a story and as a as a film. But its impact in the larger cinematic conversation around the industry and around the history of film and around our society he he really really made something that is going to resonate and should resonate and i I, i'm kind of like dumbfounded that boots riley has been shit talking it because like dude you owe a lot of what you did in in Sorry to bother you to Spike Lee. Yeah. Like Spike Lee is one of those like cinematic uh, pioneers for like black voices, you know? One of my favorite tweets uh, from the weekend was somebody, Boots had like this whole stream of tweets uh, about shit talking black Klansmen. And somebody responded is just like, you know, art can form in many different forms. It doesn't always have to be one certain way. Have you ever heard of a film called Sorry to Bother You? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And that was great. No, right. yeah. I mean, I feel like I am kind of giving this a little bit of an edge just because of the times it's coming out in, but I feel like Spike Lee wanted this movie to be connected to a certain point in time. And that way I think that it does succeed very much. Yeah. All right, let's get to spoilers for Black Klansmen starting right now. All right, so we got to talk about the end. Yeah, let's let's start with the end because which has surprisingly gotten a lot of mixed talk a lot of people say that that's the point where it becomes too much well okay so the movie has an ending which is a very strange sequence where um ron and his girl was it patrice patricia patrice patrice yeah patrice um are hanging out in his apartment and Someone knocks at the door, and then we get this sequence of shots of them like floating through a hallway, and we are transported to the cross burning, and then we see a short scene in a dining room a restaurant where the racist cop is apprehended. No, well, that's before the actual they see the cross burning. Oh, that's before the cross Yeah, burning? before the cross burning. That's the first real ending is that we see the racist cop um, get busted by the police chief and Ron and everybody else. And then it kind of cuts to them in the apartment. And then oh, my God, you're right. Knock. You're right. You're totally right. And so we, it goes it goes directly from the cross burning to the shots of the the real life shots of the the Charlottesville of the Charlottesville um march yeah okay okay that's okay i don't know why i got confused about that but yeah so we see the cross burning and then we see these real life shots of um of the event last year and i think the 
the movie kind of does have two endings mm. so that we have this like cross burning sequence that's kind of like the end of the film but then they decided to add these uh real life f- uh phone footage and all this um i think there's no way that was in the original screenplay or anything like that no, because it, is, yeah that was too new of a thing yeah and and the film was probably in different stages of completion um when that event happened but Spike Lee saw that and he was like, I'm making a movie about right. this. I need to put it in my movie. It seems like such a, um obvious thing to do, but it, it's it's a spark of genius, really, to, to make that decision to do that. Um, and I could see why it would be too much for some people because it honestly is, but it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's supposed to be because that's the kind of filmmaker that Spike Lee is. Right. You know, he doesn't shy away from these things that are difficult and that, that are too much. And he doesn't want you to leave the theater thinking that you just had a really fun time. Or yeah. Or thinking, Oh, there's a happy ending. Racism is dead now. Yeah. That's not, that's not the message that this movie is trying to present. And even if it makes it very cut and dry at the very end, I don't think that makes it any less powerful. What happens? Um, Yeah. I mean, just, because we get the footage of Charlottesville, um, a city where they still have a statue of Robert E. Lee, Jeez. like in the city. Like that's just a thing that happens in the South is there'll be like old Confederate generals that are still have statues yeah. of them standing. But the cut but, the cut to that footage is so jarring in the most effective way. Mm. It's it, yeah, I we, felt, we I see, felt it. We see the cross burning in their eyes to seeing the actual members of the KKK Ugh. there to seeing this still happening in modern day. And then on top of that, we have Donald Trump saying bad people on both sides and, and shit good like people that. On good both people sides. on both sides. Yeah. And then David Duke endorsing Donald Trump like these are real things that are happening in 2018 that are still a thing. And it doesn't matter like what Donald Trump might try and walk back three or four days later, whenever people are like, Hey, so you gotta actually do this thing. The fact that like whatever Donald Trump says at that given moment, that's what he actually thinks. That's what he actually cares about. And the fact that we have somebody in the white house who does spread this kind of deep, deep, disgusting hatred around like it's just it's despicable and especially the fact that this is something that has always existed in society and in pretty much like racists and Klansmen members like they're winning right now yeah their guy their guy is the president they they, they did it (laughs) yeah and I think uh, you know despite some of the storytelling inconsistencies throughout the film i left the theater pretty fucking i I, I admired the film for ending like that um and some might say that that's a little bit of a cheat on spike lee's part to leave you with such a intense feeling uh and you kind of forget of some of the you know, questionable choices that the film made throughout because of that ending is so powerful. But like, what the fuck, man? Like ultimately that's what the movie's about. Right. You know? And 
I, I have my issues with Adam Driver's character because he was kind of barely even a character. You know, he doesn't really have an arc or, or a clear... He carries it by his acting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the character yeah. on paper is just a plot device. He's kind of this in-between sort of Especially, liaison between... He's playing John David Washington's character. So, like, he yeah. really is a nothing character. Exactly. But so he just gives so much life to it, Adam I, Driver does. I wanted so much more from that. And we do get that one moment where he opens up about never thinking about his mm-hmm. his Jewish uh, heritage and how that has now kind of ingrained him uh, ingrained it in his own mind mm-hmm. because of this whole experience of this whole undercover investigation. Yeah, you don't you wouldn't think about it if you're just like just a casual Jewish person until yeah. you're around people are just like are you not a fucking Jew like and then like yeah. it makes you think about like and well, having to say those things about the Holocaust yeah. to like embed himself in this right. white like, nationalist. Right. That's just it's movement. so like it, it's horrible like he has to undermine his own people and make Jewish people and black people feel like subhuman in order to actually complete this undercover task. Yeah. So let's let's keep talking a little bit about the performances. I I really enjoyed everyone um throughout. I thought the dude from um I Tanya um gosh, what was that guy's name? Um are you talking about uh I'm trying to look at his name too. Um the crazy the the like the kind of fat looking dude from I Tanya. Yeah, um I'm blanking on his name as well. But yeah, he was awesome. Um oh Paul Waterhauser. Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah, so his his character is um pretty similar to what he does in I Tanya. But I think it works Playing here. Like an idiot. Yeah, yeah, I think it kinda works here. Um I thought for the most part pretty much all the clan members worked really well. The one thing that I didn't like is I wish they would have depicted some of the clansmen as being a little bit more normal, you right. know, and not yeah, they as are like, all. I mean, but not this as like whole hillbilly. Thing is, you're not supposed to be relating to the clansmen. That's not the message of this. I don't think. Thing. I don't think it should be the message. I think that you know, much like how Get Out depicted racism as coming from people that who are just. They look like everyday sort of folks that, you know, infuse racism into their everydayness. I I would have appreciated to have at least one character that sort of represents that and not to have these guys who look just kind of like backwards, uh, you know, kind of bumbling. Yeah, I mean, I I see what you're saying. I feel like the guy who was actually leading that chapter of the KKK was the closest to it. He was kind of the one who was just like, hey, like, stop saying that to the yeah. to this guy like all this kind of stuff and he um i mean really as fucked up as it is who really appeared to be the most uh tolerant of all of them was david duke because that was his whole facade yeah. was trying to be somebody who isn't wearing a hood and isn't doing all these things because then to get that a type of person like that in office so then they can spread their hatred oh my god in the deepest yeah. ways and then they they listen to his like audiobook or whatever in the yeah. car and it just he's just going on and on about how like america is a racist country against white people yeah. and Ugh. and his whole shtick about like how oh i don't hate black people i just think they should be in their own corner pretty much yeah. 
Like, I just think that they're less than me. By the way, it's, Topher Grace, good job. Topher Grace did really good. Yeah. Like, and as a very horrible person, like he did a he great acting it. job. Um, one of my MVPs from this movie is uh, Ashley Atkinson, who played the wife. Mm-hmm. She was because she's one of those people who you just casually see her like walking around a Publix or something like that. And you'd be like, Oh, it's just this, she's so nice and sweet. This sweet little lady. That's her whole thing. Except she's like deeply, deeply racist and is about to literally commit acts of terrorism, like killing multiple people just in order to like, because they're not white because they're not white yeah. Aryan race. But I, I kind of liked how they got into a little bit of the misogyny in the KKK yeah. And how it's like, it's not just about white people. It's about white men. Yeah. That's, that's what it's really about. It's like, it's not just racism. It's also sexism. Mm. And I, I liked how they, they touched on that, but I want to make sure that we, um, we get into this, these parallels with, uh, birth of a nation because I, I, that's quickly before we do that. Um, I also wanted to talk about gone with the wind, the opening that we have with Alec Baldwin, how the movie opens up. With the, yeah, the shots from Gone I really with the Wind, that. that was really really awesome. Especially because it's like a, it's another like that's one of the it's most the first iconic shot of the movie. It's one of the it? most iconic shots in cinema history. Yeah. Like All of everybody these. knows that shot. But then in the background, you have the tattered Confederate flag, and then the way that that cuts to Alec Baldwin, basically like as a KKK member, like cutting through different points in time, spreading this kind of like white supremism yeah. i thought that that was a very very powerful way to start everything and off. great great use of alec baldwin yeah too. alec baldwin's just best just give him little bits yeah just, just don't ever put him in a lead for anything yeah, just let but... him go off let <laughs> him go off um but throughout the movie there are these callbacks to uh gone with wind and birth of a nation mm-hmm. And it all sort of culminates in this climactic third act sequence where you have Adam Driver being baptized into the KKK by David Duke. And it cuts back and forth with this truly harrowing account that um, the Black Student Union is hosting uh, the Harry speaker. Belafonte. Yeah, yeah, of, um, of this black boy who was lynched and burned and completely uh, just decimated mm-hmm. in complete indecency in, in a public space and then was the, the horrible act was celebrated by white people. Which is actually based on a true story. I'm blanking on uh, what the name of the young African-American was who Harry Belafonte was accounting the story of, but... Yeah, that use of Birth of a Nations of what that movie pioneered, the parallel editing Mm -hmm. between seeing this juxtaposition of people talking of the student union talking about how much damage and destruction that something like these horrible acts can cause and the toll that it takes on everyone who is there, including the people who are actually involved in it versus new inductees coming in to actually continue the cycle of everything. Yeah, and you know the 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 fact that the movie ends with uh, partially with that clip of Donald Trump talking about you know good people on both sides. 
you think back to that sequence mm-hmm. and you see the two sides. You see the both sides and you can clearly see that there's not good people on both sides because one side is having this very solemn emotional moment of recounting someone being completely murdered horribly unceremoniously by hateful white people and then you have this other group that is celebrating racism and hatred and then watching birth of a nation on the big projector screen and yelling at yeah, the screen like, in yeah, favor like, of it. Yeah, like screaming every time that a white actor with blackface came yeah. on and stuff like that. And then it's like it's like this is this is the cornerstone of the film. Like clearly Spike Lee is showing, like, look at this shit. Pay attention to what I'm showing you. Mm. Not good people on both sides. Clearly not good people on both sides. It's like we can go on and on all day about how we're all people and we're all human and we all make mistakes. But ultimately, there is a sickness in America. You know, this this mm-hmm. is an issue that that is common to all white nations and, and you know, in Europe, too. But yeah. in America, it has reached this level of toxicity th- that it has infiltrated the highest office in our nation. And I mean, when it comes down to it, like America was founded upon mass genocide and segregation of native Americans and of African Americans. And like, that's, that's just part of who America is. Like you have to accept like that's, that's part of what our country's foundation is. So there's always been a little bit of the systemic racism in there. So the fact that you can say that both sides are equal when one of the sides views the other sides as subhuman, mm-hmm. like it's just so backwards ass that and it doesn't, it, it's uncomprehendable. And we constantly saw that in the film, you know, every scene of the KKK members using racial slurs and, and finding ways to refer to Jewish people or black people and really hateful and, 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 you know, truly vile ways. Mm. And it's just commonplace to them. And it's, it's, they, the, the film just highlights like how do these, how these people live their everyday lives, so, you know? And they feel like they're the ones being marginalized and they're the ones that need to be heard. One of the other actors who I feel like gave one of the best performances is we talked about his wife, but, uh, the actor's name is Jasper Pakonin. Um, I think it's he played Kwame, who like super racist dude with the fucking like Fu Manchu or oh, yeah. yeah, like the, the facial hair dude. Yeah, he um every time that he said the N-word, it was like nails on a chalkboard. And it was meant to be intentionally that way, just like throwing it around hard R, just trying to make you just as uncomfortable and like it there would be shots specifically especially in the beginning whenever um ron was there while um flip went in there undercover and he has the earpiece and just listening to it, it cuts to him it's like you can just see like there's this just deep deep anger that's building up inside of ron that like he wishes that he was in there and he didn't have to make flip go in there but he can't actually do the job he has to go through somebody else to do the job which certain aspects about that 
I really appreciate about the movie because while it doesn't really delve as into the characters, the motivations I think are so well laid out and the acting is good enough that it it kind of meets it a little bit halfway, in my opinion, where I feel like John David Washington did such a good job where I could feel the anguish that he was feeling in some of those scenes when he's sitting in the car trying to do it. And then um, it, of course we have the, the whole, the lie detector scene with, um, it's a great scene with flip. And I know it's the main reason why he's doing it is to interrupt that. So he doesn't take this lie detector scene, but also I, while leading up to that, you can just see while they're having this whole clan meeting, this deep, fucking anger that's building inside of him that he really wanted to do some shit to like fucking interrupt this shit so then he just takes a brick and chucks it through the yeah. window and hauls ass out it, of there his ron's character kind of it took me on a little bit of a ride in this because you start out just from the jump he's he's introduced he's, as very humorous character yeah it's not heavy at all. but but the thing is is like he he comes in from the start of the movie like you're you meet him at the police station mm. you know that's that's where you meet him that's where you spend most of your time seeing him and you just get the sense that like he just kind of has a little bit of an agenda you know all he wants to do is move up the ranks and do something you know he do, he doesn't he he sees his presence as the first black police officer as an opportunity to take some yeah. sort of action uh, to help the 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 black community out, mm-hmm. um, and you really get the sense that that he is genuinely like trying to do that. Um, unfortunately, I felt like the love story was a little bit kind of not completely thought out as well as it could have been, because um, you get this through line of his undercover mission, and then you get this subplot of him dating. Uh, Patricia pa- Patrice Patrice and um, it just didn't work as well as I thought it would uh, as I, as well as I thought it should especially because this is based on a true story and there's always things that need to be dramatized in order to make mm-hmm. it into a movie that one kind of just stuck out a little bit as being one of those things that was dramatized in order to to make it a little bit more of a movie it just didn't fit in well enough into the rest of the plot yeah i i I don't know i kind of i liked their dynamic in that (laughs) to kind of bring it back one last time to sorry to bother you if if boots riley would have made this movie he would have sided with patrice he would have been with the students who were there like we have to fight physically yeah. with force back to and this. And there would have been like and, a few scenes centered around and that. And I like that this movie doesn't necessarily draw a side completely. It leans a little bit more into like go through the law and kind of work your way through that. But in the end, that doesn't even necessarily work all the time. So I liked that Patrice's character kind of added this Black Panther uh, level to it where you can tell that people in the black community they're tired of this shit of being oppressed they don't want to have to wait around any longer they want to take action right now while meanwhile ron is trying to his whole perspective is that 
the most effective way for something like this to actually last is we have to go through the system that's set out before us and we have to work through the system in order to push our own gains. So you have this a little bit of a juggling act between the two of those things. Maybe their actual love story itself didn't necessarily work, but I liked the character dynamics that were there. Um, and, the, and the perspectives that they present, I think that's really what, what Spike Lee was trying to do. Yeah. I don't think he was concerned as much with the love or yeah. the relationship it was more about like presenting these two different uh perspectives especially the 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 scene where they're walking down that bridge and they're having that conversation yeah. about like what their ideologies oh, yeah. different, are about. Uh, different movies and stuff i was wondering because uh you've seen a little bit of the show she's got to have it right a little bit yeah. so I, whole, i've seen like the first uh ep- the visual episode, the visual style the visual style of yeah, like yeah, talking yeah. about superfly and that poster of superfly yeah, pops that, up that like was really cool. it reminded me i was like oh this is definitely yeah. spike Lee so right let's, here let's talk a little bit about that um throughout the movie there is this like spike lee flair that comes up and i thought that it was it was very well done it, mm. it wasn't as in your face as it is in some of his other work and i thought that when he did kind of like give the movie a little bit of of this rhythm it, it worked really well there's there's some things throughout that that work that that work really well for me i think the one that's really uh sticks out the most in my mind is the uh the the speaker at the beginning of the film the the black power oh, yeah. the black panther yeah guy. yeah and then you get the faces like the with the, the reaction like yeah yeah, just yeah. and just the, the, the way that the way that whole scene was kind of like executed the way it escalated the way you could see like the sweat beaming down his forehead mm-hmm. as he got so much more invigorated by what he was talking about and he's basically talking about a race war like very malcolm x um esque and talking about how like you have to fight you have to use your your blackness as a as an empowerment for to defend yourself against mm-hmm. your white oppressors and it that scene fucking got to me man it yeah. was it was really really intense it was a hell of a way to kind of start the movie yeah off. yeah yeah i mean we get that like within the first what like 20 minutes of the movie like it's pretty quickly on that's why i saying about how i I did like, I mean, we spent the majority of the time with the cop's perspective because of Ron being an officer, a police officer, of course. But I liked that it almost struck a perfect balance because um, Patrice and the rest of the students were so extreme into the Malcolm X view of we have to spark a race war in order to do it. And with uh, Ron's otherwise, like, kind of tolerance and medium ground, I feel like it struck a pretty good balance throughout the movie for me. Yeah, very, uh, very um, Black Panther, Marvel Black Panther esque. (laughs) Um, I did love. uh, Despite the fact that it led, it was right at the very end of the movie, but the scene that you mentioned of them floating down the hallway and then it close up on their on their eyes and you see the burning of the cross in their eyes. I thought that that was just perfect just picturesque yeah that that final sequence at the cross burning is so it it gave me chills i don't know i I know that this isn't actually a thing but i almost looked like one of the guys in the hoods it almost looked like he had the hair of um of flip which i know wasn't an intentional thing but it almost made me think of just like this Uh whole idea of like (laughs) maybe just like not necessarily that but just like kind of my whole, I know that this isn't necessarily what the film was trying to do. I'm sure that that wasn't meant to be flipped, but almost kind of like you never really know 
who around you could have these deep this deep hatred it's oh, fucking terrifying <laughs> yeah that's kind of just the perspective that laid that kind of gave me immediately in the moment and then it went into all the charlottesville stuff which yeah. just kind of escalated all that kind of that, i mean I, I think i think in the age of social media um which is different than when this movie is set the the anonymity of the hoods and all of that it sort of it sort of disappears you know yeah. the, the the veil is sort of lifted and it's a lot easier to you know stick a camera in these people's faces and figure out who they are i mean it happens all the time you know when when these videos and these pictures go viral and we are able to track down specifically who these hateful people are that are showing up at these events they they can't hide as well as they could you know back in the in the 60s yeah but in a way i mean it's almost like they hide under the veil of other political means we're like i mean Going back to uh, the wife character in this movie, like, again, you look at her and she seems like just this sweet lady. But if you look at the actual polls from the 2016 election, the majority of white women voted for Trump. Right. So, like, what, like, I mean, people can go under the veil of, like, oh, yeah, you know, I really like his, like, policies on taxes and stuff like that but deep down you have to look at the human being who you're putting into the white house yeah, like it comes down to more than just like one specific uh like like political view that they and have the the i think one of the scenes that's a lot of moments gave me chills in this movie but i think one of the ones that is really going to stick with me is that moment that you sort of referenced earlier um, when they go down into this basement area and he has a, a a moment, Ron has a moment with the sergeant and they talk about like, look, man, you're, you're a black man. Like, wake up. This is, yeah. this is going, th- this, the way David Duke is leading this organization, leading the KKK, there's a goal here. He yeah. wants to, he wants to go into politics. He wants to put someone in a position of power in the white house that is going to have his viewpoint and his racist agenda. It's like, yeah. fuck, man. It's it's like it's we're living that. It, I mean, it's it. You can complain about it being a little bit too on the nose or kind of hitting you in the face with it, but that's what we kind of need is to be fucking slapped in the face as a society. And that's the kind of filmmaker that Spike Lee is. Yeah, and I, I think that he did, and he never and shies away from that, and that's yeah. I do I respect that about him. And ultimately, like this movie does have a lot of of issues in terms of its character building and its storytelling, but. It just comes through in all of these other ways that just really resonate emotionally and socially and just it it really makes a fucking point. Well, I mean I uh this is gonna be the last time that we reference Sorry to Bother You. So like whenever you're we talking about Sorry to Bother You, um we did like point out a lot of the criticisms that we had, but I know with me specifically, one of the reasons why I was able to kind of look past a lot of otherwise shaky to bad storytelling was that that's not the point of the movie. I feel like the same can be applied here where I don't think Spike Lee's purpose here was for it to just be about this linear story. Like this is a movie that's about a statement. And while yes, it does have storytelling problems. I don't think that Spike Lee was, that wasn't his priority in telling the story. And it was, a, it was a story that needed to be told, you yeah. know, cause they tell him to erase all the evidence at the end. And it's like, yo, <laughs> They wanted to bury this. They wanted to kind of like shove it under the rug, but it, people need to know that this Man, happened. Uh, <laughs> before we end, the talks with Ron on the phone with David Duke is fucking hilarious yeah. and it's like i so said, goddamn yeah well i can tell that you're not a black man because uh you don't talk black yeah 
You don't tell. <laughs> you don't say, say aura. Aura. Yeah. <laughs> White people say R. Black people say aura. And then he uses that at the end yeah. to call him out. Like, yo, you were talking to a black dude this whole time. You God, like fucking that's racist so so asshole. good, so perfect. All right. Well, that's Black Klansman. We got really political on this episode, so it's a political film. Yeah, I mean, there's no way to talk about this movie without making it political. If you were once a fan of We Bought a Mic and your political views yeah. do not align with ours, then you might our, be you might be out on this podcast. Fuck this point, our asshole but. president, man. <laughs> fuck that asshole. All right. Well, you can find more episodes of We Bought a Mic on my website, CalderonErnest.com, and check me out at Caldernest on social media. Um, at We Bought a Mic on social media and email us at We Bought a Mic at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of Black Klansman. Um, you can find me on the social medias at Hunt Mobley, M-O-H-U-N-T-M-O-B-L-E-Y. Um, I'm at that on Twitter and Letterboxd. I've been pretty active on Letterboxd lately. Um, let us know. Um, I know I'm probably going to try and plow through Succession this week, so let us know if there's oh, any other finish? shows you Hopefully want us Drew to check will. out next. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next, next week. week. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians? I hope so. Later.